Good morning, brothers and sisters. Slim, Slim had a back-to-back, so that means I get a back-to-back, too. So, uh, we, didn't, we didn't introduce it, but that, was, but, that, but that was Isaiah 48, verses 12 to 22. And Isaiah 48 is a very interesting chapter because it has a very interesting command, one that's going to apply to us as much as it applies to the people of Israel. If you're new, for the last nine months, we've been preaching through the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters were addressed to the people of God before they're taken into Babylonian exile. This next portion, from, from, from chapters 40 to chapter 55, is addressed largely to the people in exile, telling them of the destruction of the empire to come, but most importantly, telling them about their coming, their coming liberation. And these have been the themes of our sermons recently. What does the message of the destruction of the empire and the liberation of the people of God mean for us? I have kind of an unspoken goal. I want the language of like using the word empire to be in our everyday conversation and not just when we talk about Star Wars. So this is so this is so this is the practical question that I'm going to attempt to answer for us. What what does that what does that destruction of empire and liberation of God's people what does that mean for us today? And at the end of this chapter we get a very interesting command where God declares to his people, "Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, and announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it." This, dear brothers and sisters, is a proclamation of the gospel. But, I, but it's one that I want to dig deep into our bones. But to do that, we're going to need to understand it. So let's move through the text a bit before we get to that command and what it means to obey it. So three movements through this text. First, the obstacles to liberation. Second, the reason for God's liberation. And third, what, what, what a life of liberation looks like. The Christian life is best defined as a life of freedom. But we have to be really specific about what it is that we're free from and what it is that we're free for. So let's take a look at the text. Let me read verses 1 to 6. Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness, you who call yourselves citizens of the, of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my images brought them about. My wooden image and metal god ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on, I will tell you of new things of hidden things unknown to you. Big picture, what the Lord is saying is this. I said I was going to save you, and so I'm going to do it. What the, what the former things are in this text, are, it's, not, it's not really explicit. It could refer to past acts of God's liberation. It could, act, it, it could refer to past acts of God's judgment. But that's not what the center of this text is. The center of this text is the reactions of the people, specifically their stubbornness. Stubbornness has a lot of colorful images in the scriptures. Hardness of heart, stiffness of neck. Verse 4, for I, for I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron and your forehead was bronze. This is throughout the scriptures one of the most significant obstacles to liberation among the people of God. And it happens all the time. So what is stubbornness? It's best described as rebellion. 
Stubbornness is in our minds an insistence on our own way, regardless of other circumstances. It's best exemplified, and I'm, I'm, I know I keep using these examples, but they're just so applicable. It, best, it's, it, it, can, it can be best exemplified in children. So let's say my daughter comes up to me and really wants fruit snacks. And I know that filling her belly with fruit snacks is going to ruin her, her appetite for dinner. She only nibbles at dinner anyway. It's because of all these fruit snacks. So, so I tell her in that moment, no, at least not, not yet. And so she wails in disappointment. But we're not done yet. Because when I ask her what's wrong, her response is, I just want some fruit snacks. I'm like, I know. No. Because you've got to have dinner. And her response, I just want some fruit snacks. I know, I know that, sweetheart. But no, not right now. This is a textbook example of, 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 just, of, of stubbornness. But this is what I want. I, I hear you say no and all this other stuff. I don't care. This is what I want. Insistence on our own way. And there are spaces where we do this to the Lord. Now, I don't, now what I don't want to mix up is persistence and stubbornness. Obviously persist. Persevere. Continue to do good even when, especially when, it's hard. No, stubbornness is when we continue in our own sin and disobedience, regardless of what anyone else around us or regardless of what the Word says. Stubbornness is when we continue in unfaithfulness and fail to trust the Lord. Stubbornness is a closed fist rather than an open hand because it's, it's very difficult for God to give you what he needs to give you when you're too busy trying to protect what you already have. Exodus 19 and 20 are a perfect example of this. So after the people of God are freed from slavery, which is a life-changing and earth-shattering thing, God takes them to the desert of Sinai, right in front of the mountain of Sinai. And he takes Moses up the mountain because he wants to give Moses and, and the people a precious gift. He wants to give them the law. He wants to give them the resource that's going to shape them into, the, into an alternative people. A resource that's going to tell these people what it means to show the world what it looks like to be the kingdom of God. In his grace and his generosity, God wanted to reveal himself and his desires to his people. So he gives this law to Moses. But when Moses descends the mountain in chapter 32, you may know the story. He sees what had happened in the meantime. Aaron had fashioned together a golden calf, an idol, and Moses and the Lord are furious. How dare the people? And what's even worse is that they don't just make an idol. So the text says in Exodus 32, 6, that after they sacrificed to the calf, it says, afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. If you don't know what revelry is, uh, only husbands and wives are supposed to do it. That's what revelry is. And so Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees all the people doing that. Right? Among other things, the root issue here is stubbornness, that the people got impatient, and so they decided to go about their own way, to, to, to do what, the, what they see the people around them doing. And the thing is that when, when the thing about going your own way is that if, if the Lord has shown you the way to go, then going, then going your own way is rebellion. And so like the people of God in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Judges and throughout the monarchy, throughout the scriptures, like the people of God, we are also a deeply stubborn people. When we weigh our own decisions, we often think more of what we want to do than what God wants us to do. 
We often pay more attention to what other people are doing than what God wants us to do. And even when God puts people in our lives to remind us of what he wants for us, when that's inconvenient, we don't listen. In short, we are a stubborn people. And it is very hard to turn stubborn people around. So why does God do it? Why doesn't he just let his people face the consequences of their actions? Why doesn't he just wipe them out? Can you imagine freeing an entire people and they thank you by building an idol and throwing a drunken party? Yes, the Bible's gross sometimes. We just have to... When his people grumbled against him in the wilderness and throughout their entire history, why did he still reach out to them? Why did he still save them? Why does he still love them? And for some of us, our first impulse is going to be to answer that question by saying, well, because he loves them so much and he's just so full of grace. Now, that's true. But that's not the answer that he gives in the book of Isaiah. The answer that he gives is in verses 9 to 11. God says, for my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. You see, the Lord saves his people for his own glory. God reveals himself in the scriptures as a king, as the one true king of, of, of Israel. And the thing about kings is that kings need people. Now, what I'm not saying here is that God is lacking. What I want us to see is that God has made covenant promises in the scriptures, and when he makes a promise, he keeps it, no matter what. And so if he said he's going to save his people, that's exactly what he's going to do. Because if he doesn't, that doesn't just make Israel look bad, it makes God look bad. And this is one of the most frustrating things to me about the way that our faith is considered by folks outside of it, particularly here in this country. Our witness is supposed to be that of a redemptive community, of forgiveness, of grace, of material love, of devotion to our Lord. And yet we are often overtaken and known by our bitterness, our gracelessness, our greed, and our devotion to our own image. And people see it and they're disgusted. And it makes them think that that is the Jesus that we serve when it is absolutely not. I think about the fact that there's a, there's a guy named Jason Dorsey who does, who does um, generations, like he does uh, 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 generations research. So like Gen Z and millennial, like all that, all that kind of stuff. And one of the things about particularly this, particularly this newer generation, Gen, Gen, Gen Z particularly, one of the things that's most frustrating to them and one of the reasons why, why church attendance is so, is so low is because they think, that the, they think that what they experience in church is not relevant to their lives. How do we get to a point where the Christian faith, one that is so deeply material and spiritual, is understood by some people to not be relevant? The care of the poor is not relevant no, that's not what they're saying. They're saying that that's not what they hear. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize how deep our stubbornness goes. And we must ask the Lord to not only soften our hearts, but to turn us back to him. But what might a life like that look like? I'm so glad you asked. Verses 12 to 22 describe the people when God has set them free. When he, when, when he refers to the Lord's chosen ally carrying out his purpose against Babylon, he's talking about Cyrus and the Persians. Because in this historical context, the literal empire of Babylon is about to fall by military conquest, specifically Persian conquest. 
But verses 17 to 21 are the kicker. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea, your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains, their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from me. If only, if only, if only. The Lord is reminding us that he, com- that he only commands us for our own good. The only way of peace is in his will. The only way of well-being is is the way of obedience. But here's the one command in this chapter besides the listen in the very beginning. Verse 20. Leave Babylon. Flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it to the ends of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. Leave Babylon. Flee from the Babylonians. What's he saying here? He's saying that the Lord's deliverance doesn't look like reform. It doesn't look like, well, let's just, let's just tinker with this until it looks a little better. It doesn't, it doesn't even look like revolution. It doesn't even look like, oh, let's overthrow the empire so that we can place ourselves in that position. No, what it looks like is exodus. Not reforming the empire, not overthrowing the empire, leaving the empire. God brought the people out of Egypt to make them a new people. And over and over again, they refuse to be the new people that he called them to be. This is what the book of Judges is. Over and over, they do what's right in their own eyes. And over and over, God subjects them to foreign powers. And over and over, God frees them. And then they see the people around them, building empires, having kings, and they buy into it. God, they say, we want a king just like them. This is what I like to call the language and logic of empire. Look what they've got, Lord. Look what they're doing, Lord. That's what we want. And the Lord responds, I'm supposed to be your king. Do what I say. Live as the people that I've called you to live as. But they don't listen. And so God gives them a king. And the idolatry and the oppression of the poor reaches a fever pitch. And what God does is he takes away their king, he takes away their land, and he takes away their temple. As acts of judgment. But with the people of God, with great judgment also comes great redemption. And God breaks their empire building, not to break them, but to remind them of their true king. And in fact, the redemption of the people of God is going to come at the hands of a king. But this king is going to be God himself. Because the son of God takes on flesh and he preaches one message over and over and over again. And that message, he used the language of the kingdom of God. Jesus' first words in the gospel of Mark, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Or near. Repent and believe in the gospel. He did not preach that the kingdom was coming. He preached that it had come. And that it looked different from the empires that constantly claimed world domination. Because in empires, you suck up to the rich in order to gain power and influence. But we're told that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor. In empires, and by their logic, strength is king. The more, you, the more you claim, the higher you climb. The more people you step on, the more you have for yourselves. But, but the kingdom of God belongs to the gentle and to the meek. Empires hunger and thirst for money, for power, for influence. But those in the kingdom of God hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Empires need peacekeepers. The kingdom of God is full of peacemakers. Sucking up the empire gets you fleeting comfort here, but everlasting judgment to come. The kingdom of God gains you persecution here from the powers and principalities, but it grants you everlasting joy, not only now, but also in the life to come. The kingdom of God is where the hungry are fed, where the thirsty are given drink, where the naked are clothed, where the abused have their wounds bandaged, where the oppressed are set free, and where the dead are brought back to life. There and only there is redemption found. And Jesus throughout his life is claiming to be the king of this kingdom. And he is renewing a call to his people to be that kingdom. And this is the call that we're called to heed. Repent and believe the good news. Well, what does that mean? It means we turn from our sin and toward the Lord. It means that we relentlessly turn from the logic of the empire and we turn toward the logic of the kingdom of God. Why? Because peace is found in obedience to the Lord. Well-being is found in his arms. There we will find rest. There we will find healing. And God's goal in redemption has always been to gather a people who know that and live accordingly. You see, Exodus is not just about where the people leave. It's also about where the people are going. When God took the people out of Egypt, he reminded them of this promise that he was preparing a land for them. And when Jesus preached the kingdom, what he's saying is that the kingdom is not just about, it's not about a place, it's about a people. It's about a people whom God has redeemed and who are devoted to him and to his word. It's about a people who flee from the lure of empire by the power and guiding of his spirit. So that is both our challenge and our mandate as people who have been united to Christ. Brother, sister, if you claim faith in the eternal Son of God, if you believe that he died for your sin and was raised for your justification, if you, if you claim to seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and to love your brother and sister as Christ has loved you, then you are called to be the kingdom that Christ preached. He is the king. We are the kingdom over which he reigns. He is the head. We are the body that draws strength from him and from his spirit. And Christ has called us and equipped us not just to be a hodgepodge of individuals who just happen to worship together on Sunday, but to be a people who are known not for our conformity to to the desires and thinking of our peers, but for being an attractive alternative. What does that mean? It means that we can be a place where debts are forgiven, where abuse is not present, where the hungry are fed, where the thirsty are given water, where people can be connected to housing and jobs, all of these very material things. And God's intention for his people has always been the transformation of the world through that people, not by making them emperors, but by being their king and by them being a beacon of this good news. This is the challenge for us. First of all, if you don't know this Jesus, this is the Jesus that we're inviting you to get to know. Because if you try all this stuff without Jesus, you will burn out. I guarantee it. Because you're going to come up against some stuff that you can't handle. It's because the Lord has has intended this work to go forward with, with daily and regular dependence on him. But for those of us who know the Lord, His desire for us is to constantly look to lift one another up. That's how we flee Babylon. We flee Babylon by looking to one another's interests. 
where, 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 where Babylon and the logic of empire encourage us to see one another as people to be exploited, the gospel tells us to see one another as precious human beings. When we're encouraged to see the environment as just fuel for our consumption, we can see it by the Spirit as a gift to be cultivated. When the world encourages us to see money as something to be accumulated, we can see it as a gift to be shared. When the world presses scarcity, 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 you don't have enough, you don't have enough, you don't have enough, we can say the words that Christ says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord teaches us what is best for us. The Lord directs us in the way that we should go. And when we do that, we, 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 we're going to find ourselves at odds with some of those around us. People might even feel threatened by the presence of an actually just and actually equitable community. That's fine. It's who the Lord has called us to be. But we can only be it if we're all on board. And so Mosaic... Today, this week, when you meet with your friends and with your family, I want you to seriously think about this question. How can I show the world that I have fled from the logic of the empire? Who can I love that I have not loved? Who can I serve that I have not served? Who can I eat with that I've never eaten with? There's a great example in, uh, in Luke 14. Jesus, Jesus is telling the host of a party, when you, when, you have a, when you have a party, don't invite your friends, don't, inv- don't invite your family, don't invite the rich. Instead, invite the poor, the blind, those who, are unable to, those, those who are unable to walk, all these people, because those people can't pay you back. Now what, he's, now, what he's not saying is, like, never have dinner with your family. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that everybody does that. Everybody invites, everybody invites their friends. Everybody invites the rich. Everybody wants to be involved in, 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 in what ends up being just kind of like upwardly mobile networking. Everybody does that. The distinctive of the people of God is that they are constantly serving people from whom they expect nothing. They're serving people because that's what the Lord does. That's, the, that's what the grace of God looks like. It reaches out to people who technically have not, who, who, who you feel like have nothing to offer you, but who you know the Lord has placed unimaginable worth in these people. That's the distinctive of the Christian faith and the distinctive of the Christian ethic. With whom can I share the good news that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again? And with whom can I join hands as I seek to be a member of that people through whom the Lord is seeking to change the world, perhaps even one person at a time? The horizon is vast, brothers and sisters. And the results are up to the Lord. But for us, our responsibility is merely to live each day in faithfulness to his commands. And when we fall, which we will, to repent and get back up again. And it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit continues to pick me and you up every single time. Verse 22 says, there is no peace for the wicked. But there is peace 
for the one who is in Christ. Let's pray.